to give us information, but it's to open and soften the heart. And so it's kind of like uh, coming into a room that has the uh, odor of the defilements of all of our cares and worries in life. You could just keep playing. All of our cares and our worries in life. And then we start to uh, give the mind a training, give the mind a lift, give the mind a boost, connect it to the heart, using our experiences as something to grow by, to soften, to enter into. And as that happens, it's like lighting a stick of incense. And in the beginning, you don't smell the incense, you just have what you come in with. But after a while, the fragrance begins to waft over, and suddenly it changes the whole scent of the we enter into a certain space of mind, a certain level of consciousness. The Buddha said that we enter into the Deva realm. Uh, and the Deva realm is simply the realm where beings who have a pure, harmless, fearless cultivation of mind dwell. And so physically, we may be here connecting in this external world, but where we really live is in the mind. And so this is designed to elevate the mind, to lift the mind. And so as we sing the choir sings today, if you could just join in with them, just really softly within yourself and see what happens for yourself. Yes? Some, uh, some 
from the Jima Nikaya this morning. <clears throat> from Sutta number 137, the exposition of the sixfold base. And the Buddha was talking about <clears throat> the danger of getting all of our information from the um, coming together of the internal base and external uh, phenomena. What the eyes see, the ears hear, the tongue tastes, the nose smells, you know, that, that thing. <clears throat> and he said that when we do this, we miss the true nature of reality simply due to the limitations of the sense, the sense gates. And he says, from time to time, an incomparable teacher comes into the world. And he explains it to us, or she or they explain it to us. They like, make it plain. And I'd like to read what he said about such a one as the opening for my short talk. He said, there are three foundations of mindfulness that the noble ones cultivate. Cultivating which the noble one is a teacher fit to instruct a group. So it was said, and with what reference, and with reference to what was this said. Said here, because compassionate and seeking their, their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dharma to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare. This is for your happiness. His disciples do not want to hear or give ear or exert their minds to understand. They err and turn aside from the teacher's dispensation. And with that, the Tathagata is not satisfied. He feels no satisfaction. Yet, he dwells unmoved, unmindful, just fully aware. And this is the first foundation of mindfulness. And furthermore, because compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dharma to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare. This is for your happiness. Some of his disciples will not hear or give ear or exert their minds to understand. They err and turn aside from the teacher's dispensation. But some of the disciples will hear and will give ear and will exert their minds to understand. They do not err, and they do not turn aside from the teacher's dispensation. And with that, though, the Tathagata is still not satisfied and feels no satisfaction, and he is not dissatisfied, and he feels no dissatisfaction. Remaining, therefore, free from both satisfaction and dissatisfaction, he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. This is called the second foundation of mindfulness. Furthermore, because compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dharma to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare. This is for your happiness. His disciples will hear and give ear and exert their minds to understand. And with that, the Tathagata is satisfied and feels satisfaction, yet remains unmoved, mindful, and fully aware. This is called 
the third foundation of mindfulness. Among the teachers of training, it is he that is called the incomparable teacher of persons to be tamed. And it says, this is what he said, and they were delighted and satisfied with his words. So I wanted to talk a little bit about compassion this morning, not from an ordinary sense, not according to Webster, but according to the Buddha. Our bodies, our experiences, all of our thoughts, our feelings, our plans, our aspirations, they're constantly changing. So nothing in the conditional world is self-existent. And nothing in the conditional world is constant. Nothing is lasting. Nothing is truly separate from the highest form of being to the lowest form of being. From the most concrete forms and patterns of nature to the most subtle, everything is constantly changing. It's morphing into some other state. And we call this dependent origination. Everything transient, conditioned, inherently unstable, and of the nature to decay. And how soon that happens or how long away that happens depends on so many factors. It depends on what we think. It depends on how we carry ourselves, our behaviors that we cultivate. It depends on the company that we keep. It depends on, the, on nature. It depends on the circumstances that come into our life and how we handle them. Nothing is pat, nothing is set, nothing is lasting. So intellectually, we get this. You know, we, we, we get this. But it's not about intellectually getting it. It's about conforming our attitude and view of life towards what we intellectually get. It's like connecting the dots or plugging into the socket, you know. I, um, we can have a, a lamp and we can have electricity, but unless we hook them together, you know, we're just not going to have light. And so it's a matter of the hookup, you know, the plug-in. And that's what makes all the difference in our life. And that's why someone can be going through something, and no matter what you oh, I know, I know. Yeah, I know. I, I, yeah, I know. Oh, I, I know. You know? But cannot make the leap because they haven't understood yet the necessity for the hookup. Or in their darkness, they can't find the plug. And in that sense of fear that comes from groping in the darkness, someone says, take my hand. They're like, I can't see you. I don't know you. And they won't take the hand. Or if one says, come, the plug is over here. No, no, I think it's over on this side. I mean, like, I built it. I know it's over here. No, no, I th I'm pretty sure it's over there. I'm just going to go over here and feel around for it. And so that's how we are groping in the darkness, in our ignorance, and yet hoping that oh, the lights will come on and we will be free. But he said, by one's self is one bound, and by one's self is one free. So the Buddha himself said, I can't free anybody. So if I'm trying, 
I'm going in a wrong direction. If I'm trying to free someone else, then that's about I am trying. This is a, a very subtle thing to get. It has to do with understanding ordinary mind and the mind that is tied into prajna wisdom. So many things we think are the cause of something out there. But he said, mind is chief. It's not everything, but it is chief. The most important thing to work on. Mind is chief. That's why we do bhavana, mind training. You can call this a, a religion, you can call it a technology, you can call it a method, you can call it a science, you can call, you can call it anything you want to call it. The word doesn't make it the thing, the thing makes it the thing. So, we have to do the thing. He said, so, even our health is mind conceived. Now, that doesn't mean that anytime we're sick, we think, oh, like, I'm a hypochondriac. No, but our thoughts and our attitudes affect, affect everything from our own body to our own circumstances to the bodies of others to the circumstances of others. That's why Pandit said, please don't tell anybody else I'm sick. He said, because I sit here half the time just fighting people's thoughts about my sickness. He said, so I have to deal with what I really have to deal with, and then I have to deal with everybody's mind. And yet I try to keep you informed, because he's our dear friend. But if we can't lift our minds and lift our hearts, then best not to think. Because it really does more harm than good. So we can let the circumstances of our lives harden us so that we become increasingly resentful and afraid. That's what fear and anxiety is all about. And that's what hatred is all about. That's what uh, greed and grasping is all about. Or we can let the circumstances in our lives soften us and make us kinder, reflective, and more opening, open to the suffering of others, both friend and who's not so much a friend. We always have this choice. It's particularly difficult when we're trying to open up to someone who has harmed us. But it can be done. It's hard to understand how someone else can open up to someone who has harmed them. But it can be done. There's a lot going on in the news today that's triggering people's past experiences. On both sides of the spectrum of uh, relationship, you know, gender relationship, particularly um, men and women, on the spectrum of age, and time factors, like living in a certain time when certain things were like they were, coming to a different time, and, and young folk are saying like we said in the 60s when we were young folk, not on my watch. But yet there are these different time views colliding. We're living in a time where people feel like they can say anything. That's not the way the Buddha teaches us. 
Everything we think we shouldn't say. Not everything we think should we say. I'll put it that way. We can use it to inform the present moment and try to see how we can uh, fit our paradigm into the present moment to help. But it's not that we have an unbridled tongue and we say anything we want to anybody in any kind of way. It's vulgar. It's uncouth. And yet, some things definitely need to change. So we have to have a kind of mind that can envision the change that needs to be made and yet with an inner integrity be able to be a part of bringing that change about. That's not always easy when we are hurting or when we're in pain or when we're triggered. Am I talking too soft? Is that why you are turning this up? I am? Okay. I'm going to bring this down a little bit, and I'm going to talk louder, because so, it's reverbing in my ears. <laughs> Sorry. But he says that there is a way that we can be engaged in the process, and that we can render our service, but we can do it in a way that has some dignity about it, about it. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about Dharma language and ordinary language for a few minutes. To be able to understand this choice of, of whether we let the experiences and the circumstances that we've had in our life make us increasingly resentful, angry, and afraid, or kinder, more reflective, more open to the suffering of others depends on understanding Dharma language. Mm -hmm. To be able to make this choice, we have to learn this new language. There's a difference between ordinary people language and Dharma language. If we don't get this, we misapply the concepts and we have the wrong ideas about things and it inures to our continuing suffering rather, rather than bringing us out of that suffering. Dharma language is paradoxical. It's the complete opposite of ordinary people language. And that's because ordinary people language is centered around the self. And it's filtered through limiting sensory input. So we see in part, we know in part, and we engage according to how it makes us feel. And we sit at the center of our experience, and we evaluate everything from this core position or core seat. I am at the center of my world. And so everything I evaluate is from the me perspective. How does this affect me? What does it do for me? What does it do? to me? How does it affect those that I love? How does it um, um, jive or mix with my view of things, my opinion, my way of doing things, my understanding? That's why I tell people when, when you first come, this is, a, this is a Buddha land. We don't speak an ordinary language. We speak a Dharma language. You don't know that language. And so it takes some time to come to understand. So we say, when you first come, don't talk so much. 
first is try to, you know, we already know what we know, right? I mean, we don't have to go any place to know that. We could just stay right where we are and know what we know. But if we're coming to a place to learn something else, we got to give a chance for that place to speak. And then we have to be able to um, mix it, put it up against what we know. And he said, don't just take our word for it, though. He said, you know, don't, don't take your word because it's written, like, in your books because the teacher said so. But he said, do listen and then put it into the cauldron of your experience. He said, try it, in other words, and see if there is some benefit, if it is useful. He says, and if it is, then drop what you're doing and take up there. He said, if it's not, leave it alone. Not because he doesn't think it'll work, but because maybe right now is not the right time. You know, sometimes something should be said, but now's not the time to say it because the person can't receive it. And receiving it is the principal thing, right? Being able to, to receive it. So if they can't receive it, maybe now's not the time to say it. Or it might be the time to say it, but I might not be the one to say it. Or I might be the one to say it, but it has to be said in a certain way. And for this one and this one, it needs to be said in two entirely different ways. So don't try to speak for me. It's like that. And when I'm saying me right now, I'm not talking about Paniawadi. I'm talking about every me. Every me in here. So this, this is the Dharma wisdom that can get in us deeply so that we're not seated at the center of our world and looking out at everything and deciding what should I do as opposed to how shall wisdom speak. It's connecting, being able to connect wisdom with um, Compassion, in the sense that compassion is not just how we feel. Yes, we talk about getting in touch with our feelings, but that's just a very rudimentary space. It's just like if I cut myself with a knife, ow, I know that hurts. Then when you see somebody cut themselves with a knife or see somebody cut somebody else, you need to think, ow, that hurts. You know, but that's just, that, that is so primal. That is such a rudimentary thing. We can't take that all the way to the pinnacle and call that compassion. That's just groveling around in the basement. There's someplace else we have to go with this. If we really want to have a kind of compassion that, that not only comforts, but that leads a person to the place that they can, they themselves can bring themselves out of suffering because they're the only ones who can do it. Do you understand what I mean? And so it's not all about sympathy in the, or, or the ordinary language of Webster who says that compassion is sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering and the misfortune of others. It's more than that. It can start there. But there has to be a plug-in. There has to be a power connected with it. A dunamis, a power that releases a certain capacity for action and change. And that means that the person has to be stimulated in such a way because they're the only one who can put their own plug into the socket. So this Buddhist compassion is something like that. It's not a sentimental concern because we can identify with someone else's pain, a specific person maybe in front of us, you know, or, or the cat or the dog even in front of us who's hungry. But it's a, a balanced kind of ma maturity of the parameters that cause us to recognize universal suffering. And this is activated through wisdom, not through feeling. So some people can only speak and understand people language. And some a combination of 
people language and Dharma language. And then some almost exclusively speak Dharma language, you know, and we don't even know what they're talking about. I remember I would love the Tao Te Ching and I would read this and I would say, what kind of mind even comes up with this stuff? It was so wonderful and it was so lofty. I didn't understand it. I knew it was profound. <laughs> you know, I did. I knew it was something, you know, it, it drew you upward to where you don't know what, but you knew that it was something that took the, the mind's capacity uh, someplace else, out of just ordinary appearances. And when I went to see my, uh, my great master, um, and when we would go to see him, he didn't have an address. He lived uh, in the mountains uh, outside of Beijing. And, uh, there was, I mean, he didn't use a phone or uh, anything like that. And, and when we wanted to go see him, we have to uh, call him up in the heavens in, with our mind. We had, and if we sent the signal to him and he got the signal, he would come down out of the mountains when we got to China and we'd be walking up a street shortly after we arrived, and there he would be. He would meet us if we missed the signal <laughs> out of luck. So we worked hard to get the signal because, you know, it costs a lot to fly to, to China and then hope that, you know, that you get the signal. But this was the training. But you see, because we had that training, we know where the plug is, Panya Deepa. And I, we know where the plug is for ourselves. We don't know where the plug is for you, but we know where the plug is for ourselves. And that's a true story. That was, that's, that was the only way to reach him. So there's this experiment that's been done recently. And it was done by scientists in uh, India, Spain, and France. And they all got together. And they had one group of people in India that's thousands of miles away from France speak certain words and phrases. And they captured that with the EEG, that data with the EEG technology. You know, it recorded their impulses when they spoke those words. And they took the other group that was in France and they sent the EEG data to a TMS, that's a transcranial magnetic stimulation device that was attached to the people in France. And those impulses triggered different parts of the brain and gave them certain images. And every one of the participants in France was successful in picking up those images. Sometimes it was a little bit off, but they said it was between 85 and 100% accuracy. Now, I think that's amazing. But what I think is more amazing is that in 500 BC, the Buddha was teaching his disciples how to do this without today's technology. He said that these rudimentary trainings would develop us in this kind of way. And in a way that would not increase our need to control others with this capacity, you know. Um, not producing thoughts of self-serving and how to use it to feed our greed or our hatred or our anger or our delusion. 
how not to use it for domination or control of other people and other groups, but in a way that would result in uh, inner integrity, true peace, and harmlessness. But he said, to do it, we have to get off the seat of our self-centeredness. And we have to cultivate virtue. Virtues, virtues like uh, an inner integrity, grounded in the perfections of, the, uh, of, of generosity, of moral conduct, of renunciation, of wisdom, of energy, of patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. It takes the balancing of these 10 aspects of our being. This is what we work on. It's not all of these other things. It's not so much about what we see in our meditation. It's not so much about what we even do out here, but it's how, what that is flowing through. It's how we do what we do. It is the impulse by which our actions are, um, are, what's the word? Are, are, it's like our motivation. It's like our intention. It's like our attitude. So it's not what we know. But it's our relationship to each other and our relationship to the world. It's what causes us to develop a sense of caring, caring on a very deep level that has nothing whatsoever to do with how we feel, with how we make ourselves feel better. It has absolutely nothing to do with us making someone feel better. It has absolutely nothing to do with us. And before we can employ this, before we can put this into practice in the world, we have to deal with our I-ness. That's the truth of it. That's the truth of it. Otherwise, it's just become some other good thing to talk about and spout off about when we're doing something right. You know, we could talk about what you're doing wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Or when we see someone suffering, we really don't have the wisdom to point them to the way out. Because we needed to look a certain way. We needed to feel a certain way. But sometimes, I'm not saying that's true for cancer, but sometimes we have something, we have to cut it out. Sometimes we have something and we think cutting it out is the quick solution, but when we cut it, it's like cutting a ball of string and it spreads throughout the whole body. So you have to know the right medicine. And that's where our training comes in. So the Buddha said, go forth, O monks, for the happiness of many out of compassion for the world. There are beings who have little dust in their eyes who will perish if they do not hear the teachings. But if they hear the teachings, they will themselves gain their liberation. What a noble endeavor to learn the Dharma for oneself. Yes, it's out of welfare and compassion for others, but we learn it for ourselves. And then we become the living Dharma. Sometimes it's to show people what to do, <laughs> and sometimes it's to show people what not to do. Don't be like that. Don't do that. Don't say that. You know. So even when we mess up, if we have given people a Dharma, you know, then they can look and say, but don't do that. So you don't have to worry 
the Dharma is the teacher. When he was dying, they said, wait, 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 you didn't name a successor. You know, who's going to be our pope? You didn't name a successor. He said, they said, who will be our teacher? He said, when did I ever say I was your teacher? Now, he did say that he was their teacher. He constantly talked about being the teacher. He said, when did I ever say I was your teacher? He said, it's the Dharma that is the teacher. And so, for those of us who want to go the path of the, or the way of the Bodhisattva, one who really hears the cries of the world, but can respond with compassion and power, it's going to take prajna. It's going to take wisdom. It's going to take getting off the seat of our own throne. And this is a process. It takes recognizing our every thought and our every action that is self-centered. Not in a flagellating, beat myself down way, but just noticing. <laughs> just noticing. Just, oh, I see that. Cutting a little deeper when I want to say something or when I want to do something and seeing what part of Panyawadi is in there that's wanting to get a point across or that's wanting even to help or that's wanting to be noticed or that's wanting, wanting, it's just wanting. I want it to be this way. I want them to do this. And it's something that only we can do for ourselves. You know, because we'll look at other people and we'll come up with something. And I have a good friend, you know, who would say, well, that's your perception. <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, but we have to be this way, you know. It's like if it didn't line up, you know, if what you're saying is not lining up, well, I'm, what I'm thinking, I'm like, well, that's your perception. Perceptions are like everybody's got one, right? <laughs> but as we keep walking the path, we start finding out which perceptions are, are lining up in our lives. Are they lining up according to the wisdom that's coming in? Or are they lining up according to our self-centeredness? We're always talking about, well, you know, one has to take care of oneself first. You know, it's always a me first. We've got the me first mantra, and it doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves. I mean, you can't get anybody out the hole if you're down in the hole. You just, you have to, like, come up out of the hole. Yeah. But at the same token, you notice the Buddha said the first foundation was that even though he taught them and they didn't get it, um, there was a dissatisfaction. The second was even though he taught it and they did get it, there was a satisfaction. And the third one was to not be satisfied or dissatisfied, whether they got it or whether they didn't get it. Right there in that space was where the peace was. Right in that space of neither being satisfied nor dissatisfied. So we have this whole spectrum. And our job is to find out where we are on the spectrum of thought regarding everything, whatever our thought is. Where am I on that spectrum? And he said, find that middle way. 
That's the way to peace for you. And when you're at peace, then you won't give people your unpeacefulness. You won't give people your confusion. But you'll be at peace, and you'll also allow them to be at peace. And there's something about being in that space that allows compassion, <coughs> true compassion, to arise. And the mind that produces the kind of attitude, the kind of sweetness, and the kind of power that is necessary to cut through obstacles, both in your own life and to create the container, the environment, where others can cut through obstacles in their lives. So that's a short Dharma talk today. But I tell you, if you can, it'll be posted in a week or a few days. If you listen to it, it will take you a long way in understanding what is path and what is not path. Sometimes we like have like very basic uh, conversations, very generalized. But you know, some people, it's like when you're a baby and you need milk, that's fine. To give meat would choke and kill the baby. But when you start to grow up and you need more than milk, to give you milk will choke and kill the adult. And so we have to stir up right, our, our menu. <laughs> and we need to add some things to our recipe. And we will grow thereby. So for meditation today, We're going to ask the Sangha to come and lead us in a contemplation. And when we uh, put this song together, we changed some of the words. And we changed the words because we said, oh, some people are going through trauma. And if they hear certain words, that's just going to uh, trigger something in them. But you know, the Dharma doesn't trigger. The Dharma makes plain. The Dharma turns up right what's overturned. And if we will allow it to, it will stretch us. And we find that we can be in a place where we don't have to worry so much. We don't have to let things that are happening now be uh, a trigger for things that happened in the past. The past will be the past. The future is not here. So that's just speculation. It's how do I be in the now when the, um, uh, when the enemy comes in like a flood? How shall I raise up a standard against it? How shall I be able to stand in this moment? And how shall I be able to support the one who is we? He said, it's not about intellect. Intellect is for this outer world. He said, but it is about heart. And if you think about heart as the attitude we have, then it will make the difference in your life. It'll make the difference in your ability to serve others, to really see others, instead of seeing them through the eyes of Panyawadi, seeing them through the eyes of the Dharma, where there's no Panyawadi there, nothing for her to gain, nothing for her to lose, so no fear. Just to allow oneself to be present with another, opening your heart to the other, 
and seeing them for themselves. Just to be able to be there and respond without any thought of, is this good for me? One can get the wisdom to know how to do anything that needs to be done. And as you hear the words to this song, and you pick them up, if you just start just mumbling them to yourselves and see how they move around in there. And I'm gonna ask you to do something today that's a little bit different. But I'm gonna ask you to sing a love song to one another. Might feel uncomfortable, you don't have to look in anybody's eyes. You know, just sing it within your heart. Like this is my, this is my heart's desire. Has nothing to do with the person next to you, so we're not gonna do a kumbaya thing. You know, we're just gonna stay with our own heart. Away, so you 
knowing we are one. We're all together lovely, all together worthy. We're all together wonderful to me. Here I am in service to you. offer to each other the knowing that we are one. We're all together lovely, all together worthy, all together wonderful to Life is not my own, what do you say? I give myself, I give myself to you. You're not alone. I will see you home. I will see you home. I give myself, I give myself. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet the inevitable difficulties of life. Say hello to a person that you don't know and say hello to one that you do. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.